Has it occurred to you that the systems we live by are not designed to get results? We pay for procedures instead of outcomes, focusing on emergencies rather than preventing disease and living a healthy lifestyle. For over 25 years, I've taken care of Olympians, Paralympians, A-list actors, and Fortune 1000 companies. If I did not get results, they did not get results. I realized that while powerful people who control the system want to keep the status quo, if I were to educate the masses, you would demand change. So I'm taking the gloves off and going after the systems as they are. Join me on my mission to create a new tomorrow as I chat with industry experts, elite athletes, thought leaders, and government officials about how we activate our vision for a better world. We may agree and we may disagree, but I'm not backing down. I'm Ari Gronich, and this is Create a New Tomorrow Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Create a New Tomorrow. I am your host, Ari Gronich, and I have with me one of my my dearest friends, Iman Khan. He is an amazing person. Uh, He's led mindset transformational programs for almost 10 years. He and his wife, uh, Afreen, have created a company called Red Elephant that has impacted hundreds of entrepreneurs' lives. And, you know, the point of having him on this call is that he is committed to helping entrepreneurs make a stand. But more than that, he's committed to being a stand himself. And so I wanted to talk to him about all the ways in which we can create a new tomorrow by living your stand. So Iman, I'm going to have you give kind of your background a little bit more in depth so that you can really uh, focus on what you wanted to, to mention, but I, sure. want, I want people to, to get an idea of the gravity of who you are and what you've done. <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, I don't know how much gravity that has, but we're all out here trying to make a difference for people, I think. And for me, that's kind of been always the case all of my careers, because there's been quite a few have been organized around making a difference for people. First, I, my first career was in international diplomacy, and then I transitioned into being a journalist, and then I led mindset programs and transformational workshops for close to about 20,000 people over the past, uh, my bio is a little dated, it's over the past 16 years now. And that's just what, I, that's what I care about. It's what I think my time on the planet is for, and I married someone who's got the same commitment, and we're just out here doing it for entrepreneurs because for both of us, that's who, if you empower them in the right way, will go out in the world and make the biggest difference for their communities, exact change in the societies that they live in. So we uh, are specifically focused on entrepreneurs, but we work with all types of people all the time. And, uh, you know, that's our hustle. We want to get out there and change the world through doing the work we do. Yeah. So, you know, I want to go into that international diplomacy area a little because you and I have a a somewhat similar background in some of the work that you've done with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And we don't really get that conversation too much. So I wanted to just kind of expose it a little bit and what you what you had done during your time working with those two factions. 
Did I lose you? Ari, you are back. I lost you for a second there. Okay, gotcha. Where did, uh, so anyway, the international diplomacy with, uh, especially with the Israel-Palestinian conflict, I wanted to kind of get your, your take on what you were able to do, what you did when you were there. Sure. Yeah. Uh, my time there was limited. It was very short-lived. Um, and mostly it was founded in, one of my professors uh, in college was, and is the founder of Americans for Peace Now, which is from the American side of the negotiation process, one of the largest players in that process. So he was not just my professor, he was like a, he's he was a mentor, he turned into someone I've modeled myself after and emulated since then, and that was, you know, almost 20 years ago. Um, that's how I got involved in the process is because he was involved in the process. And my time there was short-lived pretty much for two reasons. Um, the first reason was I could see once I was in that process that that process for me, and I don't want to be political or get anyone upset, but for me, that process had very little to do with peace. That process is by my understanding of it, mostly about other things. And that wasn't the game I wanted to play. I really wanted to play the game of peace. And at the government level, it doesn't seem to be about peace for me. It still doesn't. It's about, you know, air rights and water rights and land rights and a whole bunch of things that I think weren't for me what I signed up for. The second part of the process was that I could tell you know, my parents are from Bangladesh, which was formerly East Pakistan. Before that, it was India. So we've, in my heritage, in my ancestry, we've got several hundred years of colonization and what that looks and feels like. And I don't know that unless you've come from or were born to people who've been colonized in that way, that you can really understand how subjugating and suppressive that is. And so for me, there was something happening in the area that the rights of Palestinians and human rights for Palestinians wasn't interacted with or viewed as basic human rights. They were, they were being othered in a way in which I wasn't comfortable in contributing to that process. So I got out and I started my life as a journalist. And almost immediately after I made that decision, I moved to South Asia and started doing reporting in South Asia. And that was right after, it was a year or two after we had invaded Iraq. So rendition was the name of the game. People every, all over South Asia were just disappearing from the streets and being taken to black sites. And that was what I focused on for a while. And then after that, uh, I started focusing on uh, the opium trade, which was happening there. I got to be there during the tsunami that happened in Indonesia and then the overthrow of the Nepalese monarch. So I got to experience some really exciting stuff while I was out there. But all of it for me has always led back to how can I maximize reaching people and making a difference for them? Absolutely. So, you know, for, for me, I, I, I used to have a roommate who was a Palestinian Muslim woman and she was like my sister. I'm a Jewish male. Right, so not necessarily what you would consider to be, um, what most people would consider to be compatible roommates and and friends, but she was basically like a sister to me. Yeah. 
her her cousin uh, owned the law firm that does all of the negotiations between Hamas, PLO, and Israel. Mm-hmm. And so we would have these conversations about how, um, you know, she would say something about how Israel is, is a, um, oppressing Palestine, and I would say something about the bombing, and we would be talking, and we would have these heated conversations. And then I'd hear her in her room talking to her cousin, and she'd be like, okay, when you talk to them, you gotta, we got to you know, talk about this particular thing. And she would state some of the solutions that we had come up with <laughs> during our conversations. It was kind of fascinating that, yeah. that had that kind of a direct. Yeah, I, I get it. I mean, some of the best conversation, I think when you're in open dialogue with people, and that's the thing, my professor's name was Mark Rosenblum, and that's the thing he really brought me into was dialoguing with all different concerns and people from all over the spectrum one of the one of the groups that he had me in we had a former member of hitler's youth in that group you know and so having all those different perspectives and being able to look at a lot of different perspectives is i think what actually leads to understanding and leads to the promotion of things that end up leading to peace um i think there's a basic understanding in Israeli culture from all the Israelis I met that and I mean in the citizenry in the in the populace that Palestinians are their brothers and their sisters and uh, among Israeli citizens it's a different ball game for the most part than I think it is with the Israeli government um, and I think those are definitely two different bodies of interest but two different sets of goals and uh, milestones that they're looking to achieve. And I think when we talk about any nation and what's going on politically, we're always talking about the nation and the government and not talking about its citizens necessarily. But, you know, I've met some of some of my closest friends, some of the people I've learned more from have been people who I was introduced to who are Israeli through this process. And I don't think there's any question. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit removed from it now, but there was a time when there was as many civic organizations in Israel as there were in Palestine working on behalf of Palestinians. So I think that speaks to how the citizenry and the government aren't always necessarily walking the same path towards whatever they're looking to achieve. Right. You know, when, when I was in Israel, I, I was amazed to learn there was however many millions of Palestinians in the universities um, living side by side very peacefully, actually, in, in most cases. And then the government issues, I think it's, I think what you're saying is correct. The government gets in the way because they have an agenda that is different than the agenda of the people, which is to live peacefully, to, you know, feed their, their kids and themselves to, you know, have good schools, to have running water, all these different things that are kind of the important thing to citizenry is not necessarily the government and the political uh, will of, of, you know, the government. So that translates, because I know that we've been in this amazing time of uh, pandemics and <laughs> whatever you want to call them, you know, the, the COVID time and all these 
protests are going on and killings are going on. And that has gotten you up in arms a bit. And I love seeing that side of you because me, you know, you don't back down from your position, but you always have sought to understand another position. And that's not necessarily happening. So I want to talk a little bit about the systemic issues that are happening within our world, especially our specific culture and what sure. you're doing in order to, to, you know, help with that, because I know you're taking a stand, but also what you've seen in the conversation that doesn't make much sense. Because I, a lot of the- I mean, We could be here for hours already, but uh, I'll start with what I'm doing. What I'm doing is trying to get as many people as possible to vote at the very like top layer of what I'm doing. Then beyond getting people to vote, I'm trying to empower people to make sure that their vote counts and that they don't get disenfranchised and that their vote isn't thrown away due to some technicality later, which, you know, if you look at the 2000 election between Bush and Gore, we're not beyond that. We've already 20 years, that's already a tactic that's been used 20 years ago to get votes to not count. Remember the chads with the ballots and how they got all those votes to not count. The Republicans, uh, I'm an independent, by the way, Republicans haven't won a popular vote since 1984, Ronald Reagan. It's always been on the electoral college, which, you know, if we start talking about that and talk about the way districts are zoned and gerrymandered, that's a whole other issue. So I'm not going to get into that. But there hasn't been a popular vote won by the Republican Party since 1984, which was 36 years ago. If you almost all polling shows that a majority of the United States is liberal and follow very liberal policies. That's not to say that everything needs to be liberal and liberalness should be in every walk of life. However, if you associate liberalism with what's happening in society, which is happening. People are normalizing liberalism with Black Lives Matter. They're normalizing liberalism with any uh, with climate change and all the issues that are really kind of plaguing us and endangering our future. They're associating it, normalizing it with this term called liberalism, which people who aren't liberal have come to hate more than they hate tyranny, more than they hate a potential authoritarian in office more than they hate fascist policies more than they hate the denigration of the constitution or the uh deterioration of even our supreme court nominee process like there's things that got laid out in the constitution which are like the very fundamentals of why america as an experiment because it was always the american experiment why america as an experiment worked for 200 some odd years there's people who hate liberals more than they care about upholding those ideals. And now with all the conspiracy theories and all the sort of uh, right wing or even white supremacy groups that you see out there, they're more emboldened than they ever were before, which is why a movement like Black Lives Matter is so important. So let me ask you a question. If 80% or so of the country has a liberal way of being or liberal mindset what's going on in the country to to i mean the last 30 to 50 years have been kind of hell on the country as far as being progressive you know progressing 
in the world. Uh, we've, we, we, we tend to not act within our own self-interest in our politics, in our behaviors and things like that. And so I go back to like, how do we get to eliminate the bully? You know, for instance, I'll just give you an example because it's my world is healthcare, right? So in healthcare, the reality of healthcare is that it is so far removed from giving people good health. Yeah. And so why is it that we allow these systems that are very conservative in nature, if we're liberal in nature, and the system is a conservative in nature system, then how come we're allowing such disparity between reality of what is happening and the ideals that we're pr promoting. Sure. Again, I, I'm no expert on this. This is just kind of what I think and what I know based on what I see and what I study. I've got, I've got no degree in this. I've got no career in policy or uh, so social understanding or anything like that. But I'll give you my two cents about it. And I think it's a complex question. So first thing is, I think the mindset of the citizen and the systems of government are two very distinct things. Systems of government are very conservative, they're very old, and they take a lot to transform or change to keep up with the liberal mindset. So I think that's the first thing. I think they're two different uh, groups in terms of what they care about, what they're listening for, what they wanna see happen in society. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the systems of government that are in place, we now know are in place in a way that empowers a very small percent of the population. There's a reason 5% of the country controls 90% of the wealth. So I think the systems we have in place in government support, if not completely empower or enable that reality. So when you have that reality and most of a nation is poor, uh, in debt, overworked, what happens is it's not like it was in the 1950s where people went to work from nine to five and then they came home and they had the central family unit and they gathered around the dinner table and discussed the issues of the day and had the spare time to go be a part of civil society and go be civilians who voted and acted on behalf of the things they cared about. People now are working 12, 14 hours a day, six days a week. Those people are still surviving off of EBT they're taking their EBT checks to the places where they work often, to the people that are, aren't paying them enough to not need EBT and spending those EBT checks at those very places to be able to eat. When you work 12 to 14 hours a day and you have one day off, that day off goes to laundry, paying bills, spending time with the kids if you have any time or with family or whoever. The, the time is completely usurped by maintaining life. So people are fried, they're, they're burnt out. And when they get home, being an active citizen, which is already stress inducing, is not the thing that they're gonna wanna do. I think the corporations know this. I think the people who wield the power and hoard the money know this. And they've created systems to keep people tired and to keep people unable to participate, unable to advocate for themselves. 
And then the people who do advocate, the people who step out of that and who actually go the extra mile and do the difficult work of advocating, the way social media's sort of grown, what it's grown into in the last 20 years is that anybody can say anything about anyone and it doesn't need to be fact-checked. You know, I was on a thread this morning that someone tagged me in about wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. And I know I don't want to debate that. There's a lot of discussion about that. But when someone asks someone else to cite their sources about why wearing a mask is a hoax, their sources are things that QAnon and YouTubers have put up. It's not data, it's not empirical data, it's not evidence, it's not numbers. It's my friend who I really trust who did a YouTube on this. So something's happened culturally where what people can say and what people are open to believing has moved away from, in my view, moved away from just the science of things, which is why then it's easy to deny things like climate change, it's why it's easy to deny things that are rooted in numbers and science is because the people who don't want you to advocate for your rights are promoting, funding, empowering those theories, which then make it even more difficult for you to advocate. Gotcha. So my saying is a bully's best friend is the silence of its victims and the mm -hmm. silence of others. And, you know, we see this every day on in the playground at school with kid who's, you know, got 30 other kids in his class scared. And the 30 kids don't know that they could kind of band together and blow out that bully. And we've got 90% of a nation that is being ruled by about 1%, 1 to 5%. And we don't know, the 90% the, the don't know that they have an option to get loud <laughs> and say, no more, let's band it together, create a movement, create a stand. I would go a step further and say, it's not even that they don't know, it's that they've been uh, conditioned into believing that it's more risky to band together 30 kids to take on that one bully and that there's less risk if you just join with the bully. If you join with the bully, you'll be safe. If you band together and fight the bully, that's a risk. So even though it defies logic, the safe bet that we've been conditioned to believe is to go with the system, go with the bully. And you know, we'll again, I could talk about this for hours, but if you look at who designed our current education system, who got together, they weren't educators and professors and PhDs and doctors. They were the, the barons of the 1920s and 30s and 40s who owned the big corporations and wanted our education system to groom employees. They didn't want our education to groom thinkers or innovators or entrepreneur, entrepreneurs. They wanted our education system to put good, able-bodied thinking people into employeeship so that they could continue to grow their organizations and their corporations. And so we've had almost a hundred years of this kind of acculturation. So I know it seems separate that like the guys who were inventing education, what does that have to do with the modern bully? But it's a mindset. It's the way we've been designed and acculturated to go with the bigger guy. And it's all over television. If you watch any reality TV, 
shows like uh, Survivor, other shows where people have to strategize to vote someone out, people will never band together to get the bully out. They always side with the bully to get the protection of the bully. So we've been acculturated this way for quite some time. And you know, depending on what you believe and what you don't believe, when you're acculturated this way for this many generations, it becomes part, you know, it's like fish to water. It's part of the air we breathe. It's just what is in society. Fish would never question that they need water surrounding them. Same way we don't question that you just, you gotta go with the bully to be safe. Yeah, you know, the thing that, that I would hope is that things like cancer, diabetes, heart disease would be enough for people to start saying, but the bully of the healthcare system isn't worth the pain of losing all my friends and family to these diseases, the pain of, you know, having the food in our, you know, in our environment and agriculture poison us and cause us to be sick or the air and water, you know, it's like, I would think. I would agree with you, but it depends on what sources of information you have and what the sources of information are telling you. And it also depends, you know, we're, a, we're an individualistic, convenience-driven society. One of the people on that thread I was just mentioning who were saying that wearing a mask is a hoax and it has no benefit, someone in the thread asked them, okay, well, if that's what you believe, are you okay with having surgery with the doctor not wearing a mask since there's no benefit to it? And of course, she instantly responded, well, that makes no sense. Why wouldn't my doctor wear a mask? Right, so it's, we're not taught to link things and be, you know, it's like we're a genius here, but, but an idiot over here. Cause we, it's a, we're just not trained to apply that genius over here. So, and I think that's all, you know, I'm a bit of a skeptic, but I think that's all just the way society has designed for it to be so that the people who wield the power and money can continue to do that. So what do you think it, it's going to take for the people to regain power over themselves so that they can create a different world than the one that they're living in? You know, Benjamin Franklin, I believe, is who it was who used to say, we need a revolution every 25 years. Mm -hmm. And we haven't had a good revolution in a while, you know? So what do you think is it gonna take for- yeah, I would say, I don't know if revolution's the right word. I would say there's definitely, you know, humanity has always reliably transformed itself. Like humanity believes one thing and then there's a major transformation and then they stop believing that thing. If you look at the end of slavery, that was a transformation for humanity. If you look at uh, the end of, monarchies and monarchical rule, that was a transformation for humanity. If you look like women's suffrage, that's a transformation for humanity, right? So I think, I don't know about revolutions, but I think humanity has always been really reliable to transform things for itself to bring about the next age of whatever it brings about. I don't think we've had one of those real transformations since the industrial revolution. You know, there was civil rights in America was a transformation in ways, um, but it also wasn't in many ways. You know, it, it, it also, it didn't go far enough, which we're learning today, 50 years later, that that didn't go far enough because of the systemic 
or the institutional racism that managed to survive the Civil Rights Act. So it was, it was great change. I don't know that it really transformed the society as a whole. Maybe some people, but not, it wasn't a full transformation through society. And I think the Industrial Revolution was the last real societal transformation we had like that. So even if you think about World War II, uh, and I don't know how much, how related to Jewish culture you are, and I know you're Jewish, but it, how many people throughout the world still even deny that the Holocaust happened? A lot. There's Holocaust deniers everywhere. It's the most ridiculous thing, but that's what I'm saying. Like that amount of suffering, that amount of genocide still didn't produce that kind of transformation where there was never a genocide again. So, there have been several genocides since, you know what I mean? Right. So I think we're due for a transformation and I think it's gonna happen at the level of consciousness or spirituality. And I think that's what we're, uh, we're in the early stages of. So, so then here's the question because I watched the riots, I watched the, the protests happening uh, recently, uh, I was in the middle of the Rodney King riots, like having flaming trash cans thrown over my car. So yeah. I, I've been in the atmosphere of rioting and protesting. But as my buddy AJ uh, has said, where are you today where you were there yesterday at the protest? But where are you today? What are you doing today to extend the reach beyond a protest, especially beyond a violent protest, into policy making, right? So how would you, you know, as somebody who helps people create their stands, right? How would you shift somebody from the need to be an employee who's working 10 to 12 hours, 16 hours a day and has no time to really do what they are passionate about and they have a stand about, how would you suggest somebody get out of that world so that they can be long-term activated in the protest on a more internal basis versus external basis? Well, I, again, there's just so much to unpack. The questions are complex. There's so much to unpack in them. So the first thing is, I don't know, first you'd have to see if they have that desire. If they don't have that desire, I wouldn't, you know, you can't pee for people. So if they've got that desire, great. It starts with educating themselves and setting themselves up to be able to be viable and sustain whatever future they're moving into and away from. And if it's not viable, it'll fail. So I can't, when I, I'll give you an example. When I left my corporate job and became an entrepreneur, I had to be able to see that I could sustain myself that way and then go after sustaining myself that way and give myself enough room to be able to eat and not be financially threatened in the interim. Because we know that financial threats are the biggest kind of threats for people. When facing a financial threat, people will give up their passions and what they stand for and what they're committed to to deal with the financial threat. Very few people have that kind of wherewithal where they can withstand a financial threat for the sake of what they stand for or they're committed to. It's just too much of a threat to their existence. Our ego, our brain does not register it in a way in which is conducive to us 
fulfilling on our commitments when we're threatened financially. So I think the first thing that has to get handled for people is they have to be able to look and know that they're going to be financially okay. And if they're confident about their financial future, it becomes way more easy, way more uh, risk reduced for them to be able to step into that. So that's one thing. The second thing is your, what you stand for, it's insufficient for you to stand for if what you wanna do is exact real change in society or have policy change. Um, you have to have people come with you. If people don't come with you, you literally can often just be a lone nut out there screaming what you're screaming with nobody listening. And it's not until people come with you and more and more people are educated about a thing and more and more people sign up to advocate for that thing and then the right people, meaning government officials, celebrities, whoever, the people who are connected and can actually uh, get under and sort of stimulate the people who are capable of policy change to make it. Me walking in to a legislator's office today saying, hey, I need this policy change, just is not going to have the same weight as their top contributor walking into that pop office and saying, I need the policy change. So that's a whole other conversation about the constructs of society. But the bottom line is you're not going to get that person that has that kind of influence to walk in and demand the policy change until you've got enough of a groundswell where something about that person's reputation, life, career is threatened. Once they've got considerable reason to walk into that policymaker's office, they will. Now you don't get that kind of groundswell until enough people are educated about a thing. So it's not overnight. If you look, you know, uh, if you look at the Me Too movement, movement was around for many years before they got the right advocates in Alyssa Milano and Rose McGowan and Reese Witherspoon. It had been around for a long time. The groundswell happened when those advocates joined in. So someone who's got a commitment like that, they've got a passion like that, and they're going to see it through the end. They've got to be willing to play the long game. They've got to know that it's more failure than it is success. And the success when it comes uh, in all likelihood won't be the result of one person's efforts. You know, one of the things that I love about your, some of your trainings is the definitions that you give to each of the people that are needed for creating a stand. So cheer, from the cheerleader to, you know, yeah. all of the different aspects, like I'm the wizard of Oz. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I'm like, I feel like I'm the, the guy behind the curtain. I'm not ever the guy who's in front of the curtain until now. I, I've I've been switching who I am so that I could be a little more out front because sure. I felt like nobody was doing what I needed them to do, <laughs> you know? So I figured I, I would have to be that, but I'm used to being the guy behind the guys, you know, sure. I'm used to being that the, the person training the Olympic athlete who's out front not being the Olympic athlete, you know? And so yeah. I really like the definitions. Can you just give kind of like briefly the definitions of who somebody needs for their stand so that maybe maybe the, the audience can say, yeah, that's me and I need to find more of this. And I know, I know somebody who's that, 
And so we can kind of combine ourselves and collaborate to, to make Yeah, it I, I mean, I will. And you should know, like, the what we can get done in this call is by no way or shape or form uh, going to be sufficient to the understanding of it, in my opinion. But we well, need have to take your they're going to have to take your your courses yeah feel free you come take our course to make it really um, so. but yes you've got to have the guy leading the charge or the i shouldn't say guy you gotta have the person leading the charge the person with the vision the person who's the pioneer and really going to stand for whatever their commitment is and then from there you've got to get the first person that follows you it's you'll have many followers but the first person that follows you makes it okay for the next group of people that want to follow you to come follow you once you get that smaller group together so now you've got that first follower who made it safe for everyone else and then you've got the next set of followers who make it safe at large they become your strongest group of advocates and they'll start advocating for you on different channels and different medium and different societies different communities and the more you train them to advocate what you need advocated, the more they'll go advocate it for you and actually get your message out there. As your message gets out there and the advocacy grows and the number of people uh, advocating grows, at this point, you'll start seeing the first members of the bandwagon. So the bandwagon can really, they can show up in any stage of the development of a movement and they can show up following just about any role. Bandwagon are people who just won't move until they know it's safe. Their safety in numbers. So when there's a lot of advocates, you'll start seeing some members of the bandwagon. You'll, if you look at, through social media, you'll see that certain people are always causing disruption. I'm a disruptor, by the way. Certain people are always causing disruption. Disruption has a real uh, role in the advancing of a movement because what it does is it polarizes people and shows you exactly who's on your side and who's not on your side. And you'll notice a lot of the people who are a part of the bandwagon, your comment thread will be at like 50 or 100 before they actually make a comment. Why? And it's always the case with that group of people. There's some people who are going to just jump right in and start, and they're your first line. They're going to start defending you. They're going to start responding to comments. They're going to start trying to educate people. There's another group of people who, you know, you've got to be 100 comments deep before they'll say anything because now it's safe. So the bandwagon will only participate when it's safe. And they're the, uh, even though they wait till it's safe, they're a really critical part of any movement because until the bandwagon gets on board, there is no movement. You just don't have the numbers. Right. So those are some of the roles. And then, you know, there's after the advocacy has gone to a certain place, that's when you have the celebrities or the government officials come in because they can no longer ignore it either a large part of their constituents or a large part of their fan base are now too involved in this for them to stay uninvolved. So they have to get involved sometimes reluctantly um, and represent the people who support them. And then they'll take whatever the position is to the people who can influence policy or who can influence laws or can influence whatever needs influencing. But that's a process. Right. You know, the if you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, it didn't start when George Floyd was murdered. No, no. It's been in process for many years. And even it being in process was the tail end of many, many decades of other processes that had started long before it. So it's not, it's not something that happens just 
uh, overnight in most cases. And like I said, it's gotta be, uh, I think a lot of people who start movements, it becomes more about their story and their narrative about the movement rather than the movement. And for a movement to be successful, it's gotta be able to outlive whoever starts it because most movements will. So do you think that Martin Luther King was too much about Martin Luther King or Gandhi was too much about Gandhi or Mother Teresa was too much about- What was, what are you left with? Are you left with, oh, Martin Luther King stood for this and now that he's dead, it's over. Or are you left with the movement? You're left with the movement and that's the intention. Every movement's gotta have big personalities around it to gain the attention they need to gain. But with any of the people you just mentioned, you're not left with the person, you're left with what they stood for. See, that, that's where I think that I get a little bit shaken in my tracks because Martin Luther King was bigger than MLK. He was the movement, but the movement didn't last too much beyond the acceptance of that bill, right? And it wasn't well, continued. It wasn't in the public eye. It didn't get the media attention that he got. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily agree that the movement didn't last. I think the movement's been heavy underway since then. And it's just now in recent times with all the police killings and police brutality over the last 15, 20 years, probably since Rodney King, but really in since social media has become a thing that every citizen is attached to, the, it's gotten the media attention again because after ignoring it for 30 some odd years and after ignoring the movement for 30 some odd years, the media, journalists, news groups, newspapers, magazines, politicians, too many of their constituents were tuned back into it because of social media. And too many people went, hey, what the hell is happening? Because they didn't know it was happening because it wasn't getting coverage. What got more coverage, Rodney King getting beat up or what happened after? Well, I mean, the whole thing, yeah, what happened after, but. Right, so the media has been that way for a long time. And I think the advent of social media, especially after like 2007, social media took information and what people can see and what information they have access to in a new direction. And that's when people started that's when people started speaking up again. That's when they started getting noticed again. And that's when the fact that the movement had continued for the last, by then 40 some odd years, became unable to be ignored again. Right, so, so I guess here, here's where, where I guess the, my confusion would be. Black sure. people, colored people in general have been harassed and bullied on a daily basis for th their entire lives, for the most part. And so, yes, I get that the media hasn't been covering the bullying that's been happening on a regular basis, on a daily basis, like for the last 20 years since Rodney King, pretty much. But the people who are experiencing it have been aware that they're experiencing it. But for the most part, they've been silent until social media started coming and all of a sudden the cameras 
were able to come out and, and expose it directly. The people weren't complaining loudly enough for the media to cover that. But it's been happening. So like my buddy's movie, AJ Ali's movie, uh, Walking While Black, right? It's because he was being followed in a neighborhood that he wasn't supposed to be in. Cops were pulling guns on him. And this is a guy who's an Air Force veteran who, you know, played soccer for our country uh, as part of the Air Force, has owned soccer teams, has been a major media person in general. And he's being harassed because they think that they can. It wasn't until he literally made a movie (laughs) saying, this is what's happened to me that that part came out. The, The complaining of regular everyday citizens hasn't been happening for the last 20 years. Well, I, I don't know that I agree with that. I, I think when, again, when you go back to social media, it's the most uncontrolled, well, up until recently, it was the most uncontrolled, meaning free form of expressing or showing or casting your videos or casting a message that we've ever had. Previous to that, to say that people weren't speaking loudly enough, I mean, I guess that's a vantage point. I don't share that vantage point. I think media has a job, which is to sell. Black people or people of color being persecuted was not what sold. So they stayed away from it. It's just not how they could make money. It's not what the advertisers wanted on the airwaves. And that's where they get their money is from the advertising. It's not what they saw as their quickest path to cash. And that's what ultimately the bottom line is about. Can we make money? Again, it goes back to those corporate interests and who controls the wealth. It's all part of the same system. So I don't agree that they weren't loud enough. And especially in a particular way, when you're being victimized or at the receiving end of that, like your friend was, there's very few people who are going to have the resources and be able to do what he did and make a film out of it. In fact, most of the people who are victimized or in that category of people who get victimized won't have those types of resources and means. He was able to do that because he had those resources. Most people in that category won't have those resources. And there's also like a a psychology to being constantly subjugated and suppressed and gaslit there's something that happens with the individual's mind about what they're able to do and what they're able to accomplish and not able to accomplish. Society becomes like this impossible thing to deal with. Even with when you brought up the police, it happens time and time again because there's no accountability for it. Tomorrow in any city in this country, if a police officer is found to have done the wrong thing and sued, they don't carry their own insurance. There's no ramification for them to not do that again. It's mine and your tax dollars that are going to go pay for whatever settlement amount that had to get paid because that police officer acted however they acted. There's no accountability for them. They might lose their job, but then they'll go work in private security or find a job in another city working as a cop, which is often what happens. My point here is, even when we talk about things like defund the police, first of all, I think it was the worst campaign name they could have given something. 
Right. They should have never said defund. I hate that they said defund, even though I do understand why they said it. Um, it created the wrong picture of what the intention behind that was. Defund doesn't mean take away police. It, it means something totally different. But why that even comes into conversation is because the system that's in place has zero accountability for the people who are perpetrating the crimes. The people who killed George Floyd are never going to pay for it financially. Right. The people of that city are. Right. So, so the question becomes, okay, so I still kind of disagree that people aren't being loud enough because um, to me, you can get media attention by being really, really loud and not doing it with violence, but doing it with silent protests, just the way Martin Luther King did in the 60s. So That's I, a policy, Ari. I believe it's Martin King was talking about nonviolent protests, but the reason people were even paying attention was because of all the violence that was happening. We have a very violent history. This country was born out of violence. The Boston Tea Party was violent. Everything that's been a part of anything that's gotten attention in this country in the last 244 years has been born of violence. There have been peaceful protests about uh, ending police brutality for 30 years. How many have you heard about? And I, I take issue with that being the focus, people focus on the violent part of the protest, which a majority of the people protesting aren't violent. They're not committing acts of violence. It's faction groups on every side who are performing the violence who have nothing to do with the, the movement or the stand. I, we, keep, we keep talking about the violence as though that's the thing to focus on. And I just don't think it is. It's like, that can't be what leads our conversations if any change is going to come because that is what the people who don't want the change to come rely on people talking about in order to prevent the change. Right. So I don't necessarily, I'm not against even the violence, let alone for it or against it. Okay. What I'm for is having civil conversations that move something forward, whether that's in a town hall with a government official who can make a policy change, right? Or panels of citizenry that just get together and say, okay, you know, my neighborhood is doing this. You all live in my neighborhood with me. Let's see what we can do to fix Great. our own personal neighborhood. Great. Can I ask you a question? What do we do about the fact that nobody's willing to schedule those conversations? until they're inconvenienced with something other than a silent protest. See, silent protest has never brought about those conversations. That's why silent protests are ineffective pretty much worldwide. What brings about those conversations is when people's economics or their security, like security meaning their storefront, their home, their body, when those things are threatened. That's the, historically, if you look back, that's what brings about conversations. Silent protest does not bring about those conversations. Yes. So and, how do we deal with that? Yes, and those people who are living in those communities are suffering constant financial and safety and security issues because- Yeah, but the people who can make the change aren't. So well, how do we deal with that? They are the citizens, right? The citizens are our country. And so it is incumbent upon the citizenry to make the changes that they want to see happen and not necessarily rely on the government to do it for them. I agree with you, but the, 
my my point is, I guess my question is, in your in the way you're proposing this, the onus relies on the people being victimized. Yeah. The onus, the onus is on the people being victimized, but part of being victimized is that you're disempowered. So you're asking a people a group of people who are already disempowered and have whatever psychology they're dealing with as a result of that level of disempowerment to empower themselves to exact change about the very thing that they're disempowered about. The, you can never put the onus on the victim if you wanna bring about change. That's not how change gets enacted. It might be how it gets started. It might be the impetus or the stimulus, but the it, it never works to further victimize a victim by saying, okay, now you've been victimized. It's your job to fix your victimization. Well, okay, so I would disagree and agree with that because, <laughs> you know, you, we, we can go back and forth about that, but it is the onus on the victim to let the victimizer know that they're being victim victimized by the victimizer because sometimes the victimizer doesn't even know that they're doing it. Yeah, I just don't agree. I mean, and we can agree to disagree on this, but- No, we absolutely disagree. My, yeah. my point is, is that the system itself does not necessarily know that it's broken. The people who have a vested interest in the system being broken are not the people who are going to change it. And so who is left to change the system so that you're not being victimized, I'm not being victimized anymore as a community. So I'm in medicine, I'm in the medical community, right? And doctors are being victimized daily by the insurance companies and the pharmaceutical companies and the AMA, right? We agree. Well, the doctors get loud it's your job to say, no, this is not the way that I'm supposed to do medicine. The insurance company is telling me to do it wrong. The insurance company is telling me to do it wrong and they need to get loud. And how about bringing 50,000 of your doctor friends who also feel that same way to come on board with you telling the insurance companies that they're doing it wrong. Because yeah. they never change their motivation. It is... Yeah, I on the I, I get what you're saying. I think it's a very unique uh, way of arguing for that. And here's why I say that. You're talking about doctors who are a part of a group of people who've been educated for 20, 20 some odd years, have financial resources, have community resources, have professional resources to go do that. And they're not, you know, you can call them victims, but they're so empowered in life already that to call them victims, it's not the same as uh, growing up in the hood and not having access to textbooks and not having access to everything that everyone should have access to as a child. It's just not the same. The, the psychology that got them to their the point where that doctor can fight back in however they're being victimized by the AMA and Big Pharma is a completely different psychology than someone who spent an entire life from the time they were born being suppressed and subjugated in a particular way. So yeah, you could say the doctors were being victimized against what background though? You know, the, the context of that conversation is so different for me. And it, it works in the argument, I give you that, but 
I also think that's an exception. And when you're talking professional, I'm really talking human rights. And human rights are distinct from professional. Uh, right, but it took women to, to start the women's suffrage movement and say, I'm being victimized and it's not gonna work for me any longer. It took- Yeah, yeah, it, I said, they could be the stimulus for it. They could be the thing that ignites it or the impetus for it, but the change, women didn't vote on that change. Men voted on that change. Yeah, because the women made it so uncomfortable to not. Yeah, sure. Right? So that's what sure. is is the population of people being victimized need to be loud enough and make it uncomfortable enough for the bully, so to speak, mm -hmm. bully that they have that the people not being bullied by the bully are so uncomfortable by the conversation that they say no more bully i can't handle this conversation anymore so you're the one that's gonna have to learn a different way not the people who are being victimized right that's yeah i mean i got your view about it i still don't agree but i got what you're saying okay we yeah. and again we don't have to agree on it i just i'm i'm I want the different point of view because I do love having not being in an echo chamber and not sure. having everybody agree with, with, with what I'm saying. But let's go to um, an effectiveness point of view, right? A performance point of view. What, sure. what has had the best performance in making change up till now and what can have better performance and be more optimal to make the change faster, quicker, more effective now, right? So as on a performance point of view, is it gonna be more effective or less effective for the people being victimized to be victims or to be victors and shift how they, you know, interact in the world so that other people will shift how they're being interacted with, or is it better to just say, you need to repair reparations, so to speak, you need to repair what you've done. Go, go repair what you've done. Repair. I don't think it's any one of those things. I think it's all of those things. Now you're asking what's going to be most effective. I have no idea. Uh, I know what's most effective that you didn't mention for any movement to really take root and go through to the end of the movement is education. The more that people are educated, the more people truly understand a thing, the more likely they are to get in support or at least not stand in the way of that thing. So I think education is absolutely critical and education is, I think probably education is the quickest road to what you're saying. Now, in terms of the victims being victors, I think it's always ideal that people don't stay in a victim space. I think it's always ideal that people empower themselves even when they've been victimized. I've been victimized plenty. My family's been victimized. I lived in New York City in a family, in a very large family of Muslims after 9-11. I could tell you stories for days about what's happened to my family and my extended community after 9-11, but I don't come from a community that stays victimized. My community, um, my parents are from Bangladesh, which was formerly East Pakistan. Just about every single adult I grew up with, my dad's brothers, sisters, friends, all fought in the war. So they all watched their, 
you know, a, a genocide took place in Bangladesh and they all watched their brothers, cousins, parents all die and they fought and survived. So I naturally come from a community that knows how to empower itself, that we never stay victimized about anything. It's just not in our, it's not in our nature. It's not in our culture to stay victimized in that way. But I was very fortunate in that regard. I was very fortunate in that we always had a method to empower ourselves. I don't know that everybody comes from a culture like that. That's why I was saying that previous thing is that you can't put the onus on the victim because they don't naturally, the state of being a victim doesn't lend you to also empowering yourself to go change the thing you were victimized by. It's a catch 22. But that being said, uh, yeah, absolutely. People being empowered and people speaking up and people banding together. Those are all ideals. Those are all things that we want to have happen. And anytime there's something that victimizes people, of course, that would be the ideal that they all get together and stand up and force it to stop. I just don't think history has shown us that that's the way that that goes. And even when it does, there's many, uh, it's much easier to stop something like that than to keep standing for it. Because when you stand for it, there's just a lot of failure and a lot of people don't have what it takes to go failure after failure after failure and not give up. Most people won't stay the course. I, I get that. And, you know, for me, I mean, I've been, like I said, bullied most of my life. I was uh, raped, molested, uh, treated like, like I was, you know, because I was the, I was Jewish. I was the guy who killed Christ. I don't know how that happened that, you know, two couple thousand years later, I was the one, who did it, but that was how I grew up was being told that I was a Christ killer and that I didn't deserve to be alive. And I was fat and I was poor and I was, you know, and, and then I was, you know, raped, molested at three years old. So I had all of these things sure. that made me who I am today, which I love who I am. And I also know that I am in a place nowadays where like I've taken and I've transmuted most of the traumas into some kind of path for me. So I do emotional trauma relief work with my, my patients and clients. Why? Because it's effective and I'm, and I'm good at it. And why am I good at it? Because I've experienced what I didn't want to experience. And so I became an expert in how to get rid of those those traumas and those things right yeah. so i just from my world i go okay so if somebody is being traumatized daily for being black or for being a woman or for being anything mm -hmm. what would what would i want to see happen for me do I want to continue to be traumatized or do I want to stand up? Okay, if I want to stand up, then what do I do then? And, you know, this is just how my brain works. Yeah. So I just want to say, you know, like for my perspective on this particular thing that, and then we'll go to a totally different, we'll, we'll start talking about entrepreneurs and stands. And yeah. stuff. But I, I wanted to have this conversation with you <laughs> um, because I know how passionate you are about about all of it, about black yeah, matter sure. politics and stuff like that is, you know, what I would want to see from myself is that I would take the step back and then 
go towards a place of understanding. So like I went to a place of understanding what, what did that guy who molested me <laughs> when I was three years old, what was his damage? You know, mm -hmm. what was the stuff he was having to deal with in life? Yeah. And then I take that into understanding. I just read to my son this book. It's on the value of understanding. It's all about Margaret Mead and her work going to the Samoan islands and different islands around and learning about people. The one thing that stuck, stuck to me was not just how she understood, how she wanted to understand and listen because she wanted the education, like you said. It was that she came to that education with no judgment, mm -hmm. right? And so for me, I would say to both sides of the, this subject is in order to educate yourself and get understood yourself, you have to come in without judging the, the other person, right? So like for me, I'm white. I would, and, and I'm Jewish, which I've said to, I've said to people, I'm white, I'm Jewish and Latino. And so I, there's no part of me that feels like a white person. Mm -hmm. And I'm not black <laughs> and I'm not really brown, like some of my family is that are Latino. So I am this white person having a white experience in a white country so to speak. And yeah. so I know that I will never have the experience of being black. Even if I were to paint my body, like I've seen Eddie Murphy do, uh, you know, do his white and paint my, you know, and, and go around and experience what it's like, it's not going to be the same experience. Mm -hmm. So what I would, what I'm, I guess what I'm getting at is I come to every conversation knowing that I don't know. And so being really curious as to what the experience of you is, what, how you grew up. I, I'm fascinated by how you grew up, how those people that you grew up with that were in that war learned how to deal with all the death around them and all the suffering around them. And so that fascinates me. Sure. Right. And I think that that's the thing that most people are missing in our echo chambers today is the fascination with what's different than what you've experienced in your life. Sure. Right. Sure. I agree with you. I mean, I, I totally agree with you. And I just want to point to something you said about why I think it's missing. See, I, and I think you said it, you are a white man living in a white man's world in which the perception of society is that these, there are these other non-white things coming into this white man's world, which you have the comfort and the luxury of really picking, I'll engage in that, I'll learn in that, I'll be fascinated about that. When that's not your reality, when you're not a white man living in a white world, what the world looks like and how safe it is and what you can choose to get involved in and engaged in is a much different reality things don't look like opportunity when you've grown up that way. Whereas it does for you. I also think you've done a lot of work and you've done a lot of personal development that leads you with this kind of mindset that you have this approach to being open and fascinated and curious. Um, 
but you know, Latino, Jewish, fat, whatever, you still present as white. So the way the world interacts with you when you're in it is like a white man. You know, I was in Daytona. I, you know, I lead masterminds. I lead group programs for people like coach. I was in Daytona last September and I was running around getting food, going to the grocery store, picking up the printing. We had like 30 people there at the Hard Rock in Daytona. In one night, I was pulled over three times by Daytona police for no reason. Now, there was absolutely zero reason for me to be pulled over. Each time when they pulled over, they pulled over with a lot of caution because I present as black. When we rolled the window down and they saw who I was and that I wasn't black and they could make out that I was South Asian, it turned into some version of, oh, have a good night. Or, oh, we were just checking to make sure everything was okay. What are you doing out here? We see, like there was no reason for me to be pulled over three times in one night. And it was so disruptive to what I was doing that I didn't even go back out because I didn't want to get pulled over and have something happen and not be able to lead the mastermind I was leading. So the way it occurs for me to be curious or be fascinated or to learn with nothing in the background when I'm engaging in the world is different than it's going to occur for you. It's a luxury you have that I don't always have. So it's just another layer of challenge for me to get myself educated in that way because it doesn't feel safe. And it never feels safe. Like I have an instinctual bodily reaction every time I see a cop. There's nothing wrong with my car. There's nothing wrong with my license. I'm a really safe driver. I follow all the laws. But when I see a cop, I have that guttural reaction because I don't know if I'm going to be safe. So that's an already condition that I deal with in the world that you may not because you present as white. So your aptness to being curious and my aptness to being curious are just two different, they're, they're in two different worlds. But I get what you're saying. And I do, again, it's like, uh, I've not known you to be an idealist, but these, they're great ideals. I wish, I wish this is how we could live and it was how we lived because it's really, it is idealistic. It's, it's, that would be the smartest and most efficient way to go about something. I absolutely agree. I just don't know in our con in the development of our consciousness and how we exist in society that we're there or even close to there, to be honest. No, I, yeah, and I, I get that. And, and I'm not an idealist by my actions. I wasn't trying to label you that. I take it back. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying I'm not by my actions, but I'm definitely, uh, I believe in the possibility of utopia. Yeah, I get that. And so and we need it. You know, people have, there's people who've got to keep hope up and hope alive for the rest of us. So exactly. So, you know, I believe that that, that utopia is possible and it's just a plan that hasn't been actualized yet. Right. Yeah. So I'm with you. I actually think, remember earlier I was saying, I think the next transformation is a spiritual one and one of consciousness. I actually think everything you're saying could be the reality once we have that transformation. I got it. So let's, let's just work towards making that transformation quicker, but uh, let's go to, let's go to a little bit uh, lighter conversation, entrepreneurs making a yes. stand, red elephant, you know, red elephant is an interesting name and, What's even more interesting is the way that you guys have presented Red Elephant to the world, which is, you know, the members are members of the herd. And 
you've kind of created your own language around it. So, you know, for other people who are entrepreneurs who want to create a stand and create a movement and create their new tomorrow, you know, let's talk a little bit about that. Let's, let's sure. delve into your world. I love talking about that. What do you want to know? Yeah. So let's just, um, oh, <laughs> let's just do really quick. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you know, talk about three to five things that somebody can do tomorrow that they can start actualizing tomorrow to create their new tomorrow and become the stand for whatever it is that they want to do. Cause I know you've helped people with, sure. with all kinds of issues and sure. kinds of stands, whether personal or big community. Sure. Sure. I, I mean, I think the first thing with anything is beliefs. What are your beliefs? There's a reason there we call them limiting beliefs. They don't have to be limiting. So it's like, if you've got to stand for something that you don't think can get realized, it won't. If you've got to stand for something that you wholeheartedly believe can get realized, then it's got a chance. It doesn't mean it will, but it means now it's got a fighting chance because you're willing to believe that it can happen. Um, so everything starts with belief in your mindset. And if you, and that's like whether you want to start a business, whether you want to start a movement, whether you want to heal something internally for yourself that has nothing to do with other people. Everything is, uh, I believe that everything's happens in the mind first. So if you believe it, it can happen in your physical body, it can happen in the world. Anything we can envision, we can realize, right? So everything starts with belief. After belief, it's, you know, manifesting something into reality takes the constant work of believing it and seeing it and not giving up on it. Having really like, for those of you who are athletes or played sports, you know this, what I'm talking about, because you've always got to have a winning mindset. You can't endeavor into something with a losing mindset or a what if mindset. There's too much negative energy to pull you back into losing that game. If you go into something with a winning mindset, believing that you can, you'll take different actions than you'll take with a what if or a can't happen for me mindset. Mindset determines the kind of planning and thinking you'll do. So the planning that you want to then take action on is the planning born of a belief mindset, of a positive mindset, because it'll just reframe your actions. And then it won't just change your actions, it won't just change the actions you can take, but it'll also increase the effectiveness of those actions. Doing something while I believe I can get it done will yield a different result than doing something that I don't believe can get done. So, Again, belief, and then the planning you do, you want to have B from the winning mindset, and then you want to take action that's consistent with the winning mindset. You don't want to take action consistent with something not being able to get done. Kind of like you were talking about a second ago, Ari, about like staying in the belief that anything is possible and in that utopian dream. That's where you want to plan from. You want to account for reality in the world in your planning, but you want to do the planning from the biggest, boldest vision you can imagine. I'd rather plan to empower a million people and fail by 900,000 than only plan to reach 100,000 and fail by 10,000. You know, it's you wanna go for the biggest, baddest vision you can kind of muster up and have that be what really drives everything else 
in my opinion, that's how we've operated. It's done really well for us. Our visions are always much bigger than uh, we have seen demonstrated or seen done. And I think that's what gives us so much uh, vigor and vitality in the pursuit of them. Awesome. So how can people get a hold of Red Elephant if, if they're interested in taking advantage of some of the courses and, and trainings and events that you guys offer? Because, you know, for me, they've been invaluable and Great. highly recommend them to anybody who's listening. You know, Red Elephant has, has been influential in my life. And I know that they will give you exactly what you need. I mean, you just get on one of their one of their calls and one of their events, and you'll know at the very onset that they are authentic people who really care about you getting what you want in life. So how can people get a hold of you? And yeah, sure. I mean, uh, depending on how you like to play uh, on social media, you can be on Facebook and just look for the Red Elephant Herd and join the social media group that way. All of our information, everything gets posted in that Facebook group. Also, you can visit our website, which is Red Elephant Inc. as an incorporated. So it's redelephantinc.com. Or if you want someone to pay attention to you right away because you need something urgently, you can just email us at info at redelephantinc.com and someone will get back to you really fast. Awesome. Thank you so much, Iman, for coming on. I know that you've got uh, a busy life, and so it was uh, it was important for me to have you on here. I wanted to have these kind of conversations with you. Uh, I would look forward anytime to continuing the next ten hour conversation. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and definitely spend a couple of hours next time in with us, you know. But uh, I appreciate it. Um, you're, you're an amazing and inspirational person. Thank you. You too. And thank you for the opportunity. So thank you very much. Um, audience, I hope you got a lot out of this conversation. This has been another episode of Create a New Tomorrow. I am your host, Ari Gronich. And my wish for you is that you can create a new tomorrow today by taking some of these bits and pieces of information and gems that, uh, that the guests have shown and implementing them in your life right away. So thank you so much and uh, we are out. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate all you do to create a new tomorrow for yourself and those around you. If you'd like to take this information further and are interested in joining a community of like-minded people who are all passionate about activating their vision for a better world, go to the website createanewtomorrow.com and find out how you can be part of making a bigger difference. I have a gift for you just for checking it out and look forward to seeing you take the leap and joining our private paid mastermind community. Until then, see you on the next episode.